brace yourself because you're about to dive into another free first hour episode of the Higher Side Chats. And we just want to let you know that whether you're looking for a companion through your paranoid insomnia, entertaining yourself through one of life's mundane activities, or trying to ward off the internal screams of all those sad, smothered souls around the office, THC is here. And you should know that every episode of the Higher Side Chats has an entire second hour for Plus members. Sign up at thehiresidechatsplus.com and you'll get years of Plus show archives, lifetime forum access, a special invite to Greg Carlwood's monthly joint sessions, MP3s of THC music, bonus episodes, tour videos, and 10% off t-shirts, grinders, and whatever else ends up in the Higher Side store. It's $8 a month that you won't miss, so become a Plus member and treat yourself in these troubled times. Always action-packed and commercial-free, which means you'll unfortunately never hear my voice again. Beyond the realm of man Until we've thoroughly tested Every last close-chested view Find the more you think you know The less you really do Where would we be without THC? We know the lying to us Just don't know to what degree Where would we be without THC? The highest side chat Carwood and Company Alright, Higher Side Chatters, another day, another deep dive into this weird world we find ourselves in because there are just so many mysteries to unravel and I, for one, never get tired of it. The study of consciousness, the co-creation of reality, the magic of manifestation, looking into past paradigms that might be much different than our own, non-human intelligences and their role in our world, exotic energy sources, secret sciences, the crimes of nefarious cabals, and of course, the latest indications and evidence that our Earth might actually be hollow and inhabitable. Well, if my manifestation muscle is working right, all of these themes should make an appearance today as they are just some of the materia that make up the provocative and diverse wheelhouse of today's returning guest, Brooks Agnew. If you don't remember, Brooks is a multi-patented engineer and a six-time Amazon best-selling author of nine books. He holds a bachelor's in chemistry, a master's in statistics, and a doctorate in physics. He is an internationally acclaimed lecturer on energy, manufacturing, and more as well as the host of X Squared Radio, still going strong since 2005. Brooks was here about three years ago, talking about his work with a company producing affordable electric vehicles, as well as the very real science that supports a hollow earth, and his heading of an expedition through uncharted Arctic territory to prove it once and for all. I know I'm excited to hear some updates on both of these fronts and a whole lot more. A true alternative energy advocate, teacher of the universe's mysteries, and hollow earth explorer from on high, Brooks Agnew, my good man. Welcome back to the higher side. Thank you, Greg. Good to be here. Yes, I'm so happy you are. It is a real treat for me to spend some time bouncing weird questions off of someone so accomplished. I know you have your hand in a lot of pies, but as I mentioned last time we talked, you had told me about your work with a company primed to produce an electric truck. I think you had just gotten through some safety testing at the time. What is the latest on getting this gas-free truck to market? 
The latest is we are down here in Dallas, Texas. We are putting a little bit more advanced motor in our truck. We are able to do about 140 miles on a charge now, and this motor promises to get us closer to the 200-mile mark. The truck passed all of its safety tests, so we made it through that. That was a cool million spent. We were ready to go into production in 2016, but our airbag supplier took a dirt nap, courtesy of the Department of Transportation. Hmm. So with them out of the way, we were not able to deliver any trucks in the U.S., even though we had 80,000 orders. So now we are delivering trucks offshore to markets that don't require the airbags while we wait on another supplier to come up to speed. It will probably be the middle of next year before we're able to sell trucks inside the United States, much to the chagrin of our customers. <laughs> yes. I mean, people have been talking about this technology forever, and it seems like such a slow drag. I thought there'd be something more mass market at this point in terms of gas-free vehicles, even beyond what you personally are working on. I've done interviews with guests talking about electric and alcohol powered cars that were around in the early 1900s before they were shut down. So it seems more about upsetting big oil or the Department of Transportation, who might be doing a little meddling on their behalf, than it does actually clearing technological hurdles. Is that fair to say? Well, in the early 1900s, up till 1911, electric cars, trucks and buses and even trains made up 70% of the motor vehicles in the United States. But in 1912, there was an invention that changed all that, and that was called the electric starter made by Westinghouse Bendix. So that allowed women to begin to drive gas-powered cars. Before that, it was very difficult for them to drive them because they were hand-cranked. They only went about 12 miles an hour, and you had to have a heck of a thigh muscle to push that release down to release the band off of the spinning cylinder on the side of the motor. They were kind of dangerous to drive. Mm. But after 1912, cars got a lot easier to drive, and gas was so cheap, it was you know less than a nickel a gallon. So people just started driving gas-powered cars. They had a lot more range and they could go faster. So the rest is automotive history. But that being said, batteries got a lot better, motors got a lot better, controller technology got a lot better. And in the mid-90s, actually 96 or 97, we built a car that did about 80 miles on a charge, about the same as the Nissan Leaf. But it was cheap to build. I mean, just cheap. And uh, we couldn't get it past NHTSA. NHTSA is the National Highway traffic safety administration and as fast as the electric vehicle industry could innovate cars there were about 13 or 14 of us in 2009 now there's only three the department of transportation and the epa believe it or not has been taking them out of business they've tried numerous times over half a dozen times to take tesla motors out of business but they just have too much money and too many customers and they managed to make it through. I think you heard recently a rumor that Elon Musk was going to take Tesla Motors back private. Mm -hmm. That was a tactic that is used by companies to chase off what's called naked short traders in this business. 
if you're a publicly traded company, you really have two businesses. One is to run your company, make whatever product you're going to make. And the other company is to stay compliant with the SEC. The issue is that you have predators out there, giant corporations who make their money destroying public companies. This is what they do. They'll short 50, 60, 100 million shares of your stock, and that stock doesn't even exist. And then they'll hire a real detestable industry called a market maker. And the market maker will go out and spread false, bad rumors about your company like, oh, the CEO is taking Ambien or the CEO got a traffic ticket or the car is unsafe, even though there's no evidence to back that up whatsoever. And what will happen is just that rumor, well enough publicized, will make the stock go down. And when the stock goes down, the naked short traders make millions of dollars a day, Hmm. literally millions of dollars a day. And they never have to pay taxes on this money because they never own the stock. It's just a short. So Elon Musk has stopped them once before, and it was just sheer luck. The short trader was one of the largest banks in this country. I think Tesla Motors stock was about $23 or $23.50 a share. They had just done a reverse merger with a publicly traded company. And this bank was naked shorting their stock unbelievably. And they hired a market maker to drive the car and trash it. And that's exactly what he did. He drove at 100 miles an hour with the windows down in the wintertime. He didn't charge it for a couple of days. And he ended up killing it on the Pennsylvania Turnpike. The car got towed. He wrote a terrible review of the car, and the stock dropped about $1.50 a share, and the market makers couldn't be more happy, and neither could the short traders. Right. Elon Musk sent an engineer to New York, grabbed the black box out of that car, downloaded the information, and discovered that the market maker had severely abused the car, but that the car had actually exceeded all of its design parameters. So Elon Musk cranked up the presses, pumped out a press release saying, see, the car did wonderfully. And the stock bumped back up about two bucks. (laughs) Well, this happened to catch the naked short traders without stock to deliver. And the stock didn't exist. So they had to buy it from existing shareholders. Mm. And the stock went from about $24.50 a share all the way to $200 a share in about three weeks. Hmm. Elon Musk dumped about 25 million shares of treasury stock on the market, raised another $360 million in equity, paid off his federally subsidized loans, and the rest is corporate history. (laughs) Tesla Motors survived just by the skin of their teeth because the naked short traders almost destroyed Tesla Motors. And had they done that, you would not have an electric vehicle on the American highway today. (laughs) Man, Wall Street scams and schemes, they make the world go round, don't they? (laughs) The bad part about it is all of that activity that was done by the bank and by the market maker is illegal. And the SEC should have put someone in prison over that. All right. But the Obama White House refused to prosecute any of them. The SEC let them all slide, and they started doing it again 
And Elon Musk chased them off by saying, well, this time I'm going to take the company private. We have enough cash to buy all the shareholders out. The stock jumped a little bit and it scared the short traders off. So he bought his company another year or two on the market. Interesting. Yeah. The corporate class has just had a different set of rules as long as I've been alive. Much longer, actually. So illegal, legal. To them, it's all the same, it seems, sadly. But another big thing I'm excited to talk more about is the Hollow Earth. Maybe you can remind us of how the expedition on the Russian icebreaker plan came about and the latest updates on the prospect of actually being able to make that journey. There are a couple of updates, right? Sure. Just give everybody a quick update. Back in 2005... We were just completing the research on the first volume of The Ark of Millions of Years, which we had put out. It was actually our first book, and it became a national bestseller. And the only piece of evidence that we really lacked was a trip to the Arctic to see if there was any evidence of this oceanic depression or any of this legend of a hollow earth. So I thought, well, surely somebody's doing an expedition. And I began to do a little bit of research, and sure enough, there was a group out of Salt Lake City doing an expedition. So I called them up, I found out how much it cost, and I joined the expedition. And I was on the science team that was going to help build the gyroscope to measure the curvature of the Earth so that we could actually tell if we were sailing into an opening or not. And that lasted about seven or eight months, and the leader of the expedition, who at that time was a great guy named Stephen Curry, got the same brain cancer that the late John McCain just died of, and he was gone, just like that. So that was the end of the expedition. And then they called me a couple months later and said, listen, we still really want to do this expedition. Would you lead the expedition? And I said, I'll call you back. <laughs> so I let it sit for a couple of months, and I called him back, and I said, okay, I'll I'll do it just because I want to see it done, and I think we can get this done. Well, 2008 was the year we were going to try to do it, but the economy had a completely different plan, yes. like crashing. <laughs> so we were not able to raise the $2 million it was going to take to rent the Russian icebreaker and do the expedition. So we postponed it. We tried it again the next year and the next year and just never – for two or three years, couldn't seem to raise the money. So we decided, all right, we'll shoot a pilot film. We could afford to do that. So I spent about, I don't know, $30,000 of my own money. We shot a pilot film for half an hour. We entered it into the Genes of Galileo contest on Nippon Television Network, and we won. Hmm. And we had about 17 million people watch that movie that night. And we thought, okay, now we have the momentum to do it. And we tried to go fund me and Kickstarter and things like that and just couldn't seem to raise the money. So we decided to see if we could get one of the big cable companies like Discovery or Nat Geo or History or one of them interested and it was just beyond their budget. They spend about $10,000 a show for what they put on and they didn't have the money to do something this big. So now we have put together a multinational group that is in the process of raising the money to shoot a series. And the series is going to begin with all of the stuff that we've already accomplished to Tibet and China and Japan and Mexico and all the legends that we've searched around the world. We're going to shoot all that. 
And then maybe the second or the third season, we will actually do a reality program, which will be the Arctic Cruise. And the Russians just finished two great ships. One of them is called the Arctica, which is fully capable, nuclear-powered, great hull. It's going to be able to do this expedition, and they're excited about doing it. So hopefully we can raise the, now it's $3.5 million to get it done, but we think we can do it with the money we raise from the first two seasons of the series. Beautiful, beautiful. And I guess is there a timeline for the series? I've heard you talk about Netflix being involved. Netflix is involved. Netflix is the first pitch. Then there are others. There's Hulu, there's Amazon, there's Google, there's Apple, all kinds of bidders. And we'll see once we get the pitch reels done and we you know, let them see the script. I think that there will never be, never has been, and never will be an expedition anything like it. It makes Deadliest Catch look like an afternoon outside of Bass and Pro Shop. <laughs> I love it. I'm excited. And for people who are listening and maybe they think the inside of the earth is settled science, how did the conventional ideas about the inside of the earth get as solidified, no pun intended, as they have been when we've only really drilled down about eight miles? Well, that's true. We have only drilled about eight miles, and it's pretty amazing, the settled science. It was based upon two assumptions. One is that the thermal conductivity of iron is very low, and thus the interior of the Earth has this kind of molten dynamo that is responsible for making our magnetosphere. If you pull up a geology textbook, any older than five years, that's exactly what you're going to see, going back till ink was applied to paper. But about 2012, a different hypothesis was put forward. A whole bunch of science in space and in oceanography called into question the current planetary core geology. Things just didn't line up. Washington University employed under Dr. Y. Sessions, a group of grad students that analyzed 600,000 seismograms. These seismograms are made every time there's a big earthquake on the Earth. All of the survey stations around the world pick up the vibrations and they kind of gather enough information to do a CAT scan of the Earth. Right. So what Dr. Y. Sessions did is they had about 600,000 of these reports, but no analysis. So he put his grad students on it. They wrote the programs. They crunched the numbers. And they discovered another ocean underneath the crust. The size are actually bigger than the Atlantic Ocean. They could pick up the waves crashing on the shore inside the planet. Well, that changed everything. Now we had... Multiple disciplines, which is very rare in science, actually. Everybody has their own religiosity when it comes to their science. But we had multiple disciplines going after a new hypothesis, and that hypothesis is that crystallized iron actually has a high thermal conductivity. It has to in order for this theory to hold any water, so to speak. But the trouble is that we don't have access to the crust. <laughs> We've only drilled in eight miles. We don't have a ship that can go into the core of the Earth and take a look. 
So what we have to do is design experiments to spectrographically duplicate what we're picking up from the core of the Earth. And so what they did in Hamburg, Germany, and in Washington, D.C., a lab in Washington, D.C., is they built what's called a diamond anvil. This was in 2012. And over the period of the next year, what they learned how to do is smash iron in between the diamond anvil to the pressures equaling what they expect the interior of the earth would be like, at least at the core, and then shoot lasers through the diamonds to heat up that iron. And what they were able to do is duplicate the thermal conductivity of the iron, which produced about 6,000 degrees C, which is the same temperature as the surface of the sun. So now you have a solid iron crystal about 1,200 miles in diameter that puts off a white light in the iron wavelength, which is suitable for photosynthesis. Not a fusion reaction, but it's still a good wavelength of light for photosynthesis. You can make sugar from it. Now you have an ocean, now you have light, and you have an atmosphere. You have all the makings, everything that you need for life. And now is when things really get interesting. Mm -hmm. Because geophysicists are now publishing that the core is revolving on the axis of the Earth a little bit faster than the crust, which would make a lot of sense if you take into consideration conservation of momentum and the theory that the crust has been expanding for the last three billion years. And the magnetosphere has actually only been around for about a billion years instead of three billion years. It makes a big difference. Now what you have is current conditions that line up with the hypothesis. The experiments have been repeated, which means we're well on our way to coming up with a new theory for how planets form. And that really has everybody excited. So that gives us renewed interest to try to look for a possible opening in the crust. It might be 4,400 meters underwater, but there might be this opening and we're going to go try to see it for ourselves. Beautiful. That is a great overview. You got the water, light, and atmosphere. That is the soup you need. And I've been reading more and more little pop science articles about the inner ocean and about inner forests even and huge cave systems. There's one in China that they talk about. And it's pretty compelling that people are kind of opening up to what might be below our feet. And the fact that they've captured data of waves crashing inside the planet, I mean, that's got to get anybody excited. And we know that there are maybe qualities or properties of water that are lesser known, still being discovered. People talk about informational properties. There's some people out there talking about a fourth phase of water. Are there properties of water as you see it that could actually maybe strengthen the case or give us a better idea of how it might come into play under the surface? Well, it's possible. I mean, one of the things that we know about water, it is a very unique molecule in the universe because of the oxygen atom. Oxygen atom has an extra pair of electrons once you put two hydrogens on it. And it sort of acts like throwing a negative magnet in between two other negative magnets. It pushes the hydrogen protons apart. And at room temperature, the water forms a unique angle. It's not exactly 90 degrees. It's a little under 100 degrees. But when you freeze 
this water, the bond relaxes and the little beggar expands. So all other compounds shrink when you freeze them, but not water. Water has a unique property uh, to be able to almost record frequency that's beamed at it. So in some sense, I guess water can store information. Hmm. It can also transfer that information to other atoms around it. Indeed. I mean, that's a fascinating thing. And I also wanted to ask you about this state-sized piece of ice that I guess a few years ago opened up the Northwest Passage in a way that we haven't seen in a long, long time. And that's a component to this expedition, right? Yes, this is the oceanographic piece of evidence. In 2007, we had some very strange Arctic warming and the jet stream was directed in a weird direction and it put a lot of stress on the ice and the ice calved. That is to say, a big crack opened up and the cumulative stress and the warming of the water pushed a big old huge piece of ice off, about half the size of the state of Connecticut. And it opened up the Northwest Passage in the Arctic Circle for the first time in, I don't know when. I mean, they haven't even been able to take ice cores, but I'd say at least 10,000 years. Well, every few years, the oceanographers go to Malaysia and they sample rays, like stingrays and manta rays. And evidently, this particular species is very sensitive to environmental stress, kind of like frogs are in the forest. If you have environmental stress like pollution or something like that in a forest, frogs will mutate. And the same thing happens with rays. So they monitor this species in the ocean and they go and they take samples. Well, normally they see between 20 and 50 new species of rays. They see mutations that occur in the rays. But in 2008, when they sampled, they found 1,500 species of rays. And a lot of these were not mutations. They were new things that we had not seen in about a million years. Things like frilled sharks and dorsal squids and big giant stingrays. Not manta rays, but stingrays. Things that we have fossils for, but we don't have living organisms. Well, they found them. So that kind of lent to the idea that there was a different biosphere where these mature sea creatures lived and it opened and mixed with our biosphere and they swam into our ocean and they were netted. They came down with the Gulf Stream and they were netted. So this is just another sack of sand in the balance toward the idea that maybe there is a biosphere and life, complex life on the inside of the planet. That is amazing, man. I'm so glad you went into the ray discoveries in Malaysia because I just think that's so interesting. I once had a guest talk about mammoths frozen in the ice, and the speculation was that maybe on the inside, they're getting too close to a cliff edge, falling off, freezing in the water, and floating out to where we are. But just the prospect of species that are thought to be extinct actually thriving on the inside, cut off from where we are, and then possibly being able to now 
come through because of this calving that happened. I mean, that's fascinating. Who knows what else could be under there? Well, that's exactly right. And that's a great question. And that's what scientists do is we ask questions just like that. <laughs> Who knows what else is under there? And the answer is along the lines of, well, let's go and see. Let's just go and see. Let's take the right craft, the right scientific team with the right instruments, and let's go gather the data, shoot the film, and find out for ourselves. That's what the expedition was all about. Cheers to that. And you mentioned the crystalline iron core. To get a good visual going, how should we picture this crystalline iron's light? Does it have different qualities than the light we would be used to on the surface? Yeah, it'll have different qualities in the sense that it doesn't have the short wavelengths like you know, UVC or UVB or UVA. So this is going to be longer wavelength, I would say shorter than infrared, which is kind of like when you go to a hockey game and they fire up the natural gas heaters, that red glow, that's iron, that's infrared, you're feeling it, infrared radiation strike your skin, and that's how it transfers heat to you. It would be much hotter than that. Instead of the few hundred degrees or barely a thousand degrees that you get from the methane flame, you're talking about 6,000 degrees C. This is a tremendous amount of pressure and a tremendous amount of light. The photons that are being emitted are coming from electrons that are excited to really, really high states. The electron clouds on the crystalline iron are way out there. The other thing that we know, because we're taking spectrographic measurements of this frequency, is it is pure iron. There's one spike, and that's pure Fe2. So there are no impurities to this. This is a solid iron crystal, which means its density is way up there, like 15 and a half grams per cubic centimeter, way up there, which is like five times the density of just plain old earth. One of the confusing things, one of the things that doesn't line up when we determine what's called the Lagrange points, these Lagrange points are points of equidistance between bodies that are orbiting. So obviously the earth is orbiting around the sun. So there is a point at which in between the earth and the sun where a body would neither be attracted nor repelled from either body. We call that Lagrange point, a point of equidistance on the orbit. Well, the problem is that based on the size of our orbit, the speed with which we're going around the sun and our estimates of the mass of the sun, the orbit of the earth is off by about 1,200 kilometers, which is just about the distance it would be off if we had a solid iron core and a solid crust or a semi-solid crust with a liquid mantle in the crust and then an open air gap between the solid core and the solid crust, somewhere between 500 and maybe 850 miles. That's a big atmosphere. Our atmosphere on the surface is about 22 miles. That's about it. And that's stretching it pretty good. The space shuttle is up around 
what, 40 miles, 50 miles? Mm-hmm. So 200 miles is the outside. So you're talking a tremendous atmosphere inside the planet that would insulate the crust from the core. And I think it could make for a very interesting biosphere. Mm, Indeed, man. Yes, that model is just so fascinating to me. And I like how you put it in the terms of just how thin our atmosphere is compared to the picture you're painting of the inner crust, a 500 to 850 mile layer of atmosphere as opposed to our 22 or so mile protective layer. I think it's a wild possibility. And if we were going to speculate about intelligent humanoid forms of life on the inside, would you expect their biology to be different in any significant way or affected somehow by this different environment on the inside surface? I would expect so, because without ultraviolet radiation to break down the proteins, you probably could have, I'm going to say, a weaker genetic code thrive and it would not be able to survive very long on the surface because it would in effect get a severe sunburn being on the surface because it has no immunity to what we call in chemistry photodimerization. This is where the photon of ultraviolet light comes in and splits the double bond of the protein and the protein actually breaks apart. You get a mutation you get severe tissue damage and the tissue dies. Hmm. It's a lot like sterilization. So you would have, I would think, a biology on the inside of the planet that could develop that wasn't resistant to ultraviolet radiation. Hmm. I love it, man. And I was going to ask you, do your colleagues give you a hard time on the Hollow Earth stuff? You mentioned since 2012, new discoveries are making people rethink their religiosity on these sorts of things. Are you still getting a little bit of guff for this, or have the minds kind of opened up a little bit in recent years? I think the minds are opening up in recent years because of the universities that are doing the experiments. You have Stanford, Harvard, Washington University, Cambridge. We've had Johns Hopkins, you know, so we're seeing a very good population of controversial papers now from credible science departments, and it is making it easier to ask the question. That's great. And of course, for you, the next step is trying to get this expedition underway for some of these universities that are doing the research of the underground domain. Is there a next step for them that you see coming? I don't really know. I mean, a lot of these universities run off of grants. They have grant writers that go to Washington. I know my brother was one of them for a long time. And the grants, I'm afraid to say, come from one of three departments. They either come from DARPA, which there has to be some aspect of either weapons research or defense weapons research before DARPA is going to put up money. The second source, and I know people are going to scoff at this, but this is true. It's the CIA. The CIA pumps hundreds of millions of dollars into universities to research 
all kinds of stuff, stuff that you would not believe. <laughs> they also, DARPA and the CIA, both fund movies. They fund yes. Hollywood movies. And they do it with a purpose in mind. The third source of money, believe it or not, are the political parties. And here's why. In recent years, we've kind of seen this get exposed, but not to the point that it is in the recent book that I just published called Charm of Favor. Mm. And that is that uh, politicians need Hollywood. They need Hollywood to do fundraisers. They need the money to flow back into their campaigns because that way they can buy commercial space and they can make political action committees run attack ads on their enemies. Here's how it works. The taxpayers will send money to Hollywood to shoot a film and it'll be bloated. Like maybe it's $170 million of taxpayer money that goes to shoot a film. Then the politician will go to Hollywood and have a big fundraiser. The funds will come right back into the political campaign, usually about 10 to 20 percent. So if they send $170 million to a, a film, they get back about $1.7 million directly into their campaign from the personalities in Hollywood who are laundering the tax money right back into their campaigns. Mm. And this is the third source of funds that goes into these big projects. <laughs> well, I can say that the idea that DARPA and the CIA are right up there funding Hollywood films and scientific research is not really that controversial of an idea around here, but you're in a fringe community right now. And you mentioned your uh, brother was one of these grant writers. I heard you on another show talking about your brother... I believe he was on the Human Genome Project when it started, and he had mentioned that it's gone well beyond where they thought it would go. And I'm curious if you could elaborate on what he or you might have meant by that. Well, what happened, they got grants to begin the Human Genome Project, and they began with small samples. Basically, what they were trying to do is sequence the genome so they know what section of the genome does what like for hair color or for different kinds of diseases. But then they got better at it and they began to see racial markers and geographic markers and different lineage markers. The trouble was they needed a lot more sample material and they needed a lot more money. So they went to DARPA and they were actually going to collect genetic material I won't say by force, but they were going to collect it by way of mandate. And it became a politically touchy subject under <laughs> George W. Bush. And so what happened was they decided to flip it to a private industry, which developed into a couple of different companies, one of which has done a massive marketing campaign, and they're called 23andMe. Not only did they raise the money for the technology to rapidly turn around these human genome mapping systems, but they actually made the people pay for their own processing fees. And they just marketed it. They, they told people, you know, wouldn't it be great if you could tell where you came from? 
And so this is really, you know, the search for Captain America. They're looking for gene markers, and this is driven by DARPA, and it's driven for a good reason and two bad reasons. The good reason is that the universities said, look, what if we determine a way to deliver targeted cures using viruses that are specific to certain genetic properties. For instance, you have a propensity for diabetes or a propensity for sickle cell anemia. These are things that have specific genetic markers. They could put genetic treatments into macrophages, which are like little lunar landers made of molecular material. And they could inject that material into the human body. The macrophage would go directly to where it is enzymatically keyed to go, and it would deliver the genetic alteration. And that's exactly what happened. They did make these discoveries, and they're making cures for different kinds of cancer by leaps and bounds using this technology. They're able to alter certain proteins that allow the cancer cell to divide, make it where the cancer cell can no longer divide, the cancer cells grow old, they die, and they're not replaced. And they're having huge success with this. But the two other functions, which are not good, which DARPA was really interested in, was weaponry that was targeted to specific gene groups. And I think you can see where this goes. Hmm. It doesn't go well. It allows them to do genocide on a very limited basis. All they really have to do is determine which genetic type they want to eliminate. Now, their reasoning for doing this, and I've read the papers myself, is not that they want to do it, but they know someone will. And so mm -hmm. they have to be able to develop it in order to defend against it. And that's their reasoning for doing it. <laughs> that's been the justification for a lot of things. <laughs> but I understand. I understand what they're saying. So to switch gears a little bit, something I haven't gotten to talk to you about is your birth book trilogy, which sort of compiles the history of the Earth. But you write about it being two planets. Explain to us how this model works. Is this just another way of describing or explaining the hollow earth and the sphere inside a sphere model? No, no. This goes back to the arc of millions of years, which we used 44 different ancient civilizations, their texts, their writings, their traditions. And a common theme among all these, and we're talking the Toltecs, the Olmecs, the Zapotecs, the Mayans, the Egyptians, the Babylonians, all these uh, civilizations had a common theme. And that was that Earth is actually made up of two different kinds of matter, that there is a spirit Earth and there is a temporal Earth. One is very high vibrational matter and the other is low vibrational matter. And they occupy the same space at the same time. It's not that outrageous of a physics thought when you think about it because a neutrino could pass through a light year of Earth and not touch a thing. There's a lot of space in the molecular structure of the Earth. 
you could liken it to having a five-gallon bucket full of glass marbles, and then you take three gallons of water and you pour it into the same bucket. Now you have two different molecular structures. One is higher vibrational, the other is lower vibrational, and they occupy the same space at the same time. Not that outrageous of an idea. After all, that's what a human being is. We're higher vibrational energy occupying a bag of water and protein. So we animate it. So the birth trilogy, at first it was crafted as a screenplay for a big screen movie for a science fiction twist on the principle of the rapture. So the rapture is this idea where Jesus comes back and he picks up all the righteous people off the earth and then he lays waste to the earth, just burns everything as stubble. And we sit up there in our sky chariot box seat and watch it happen. It's a tradition. It's not actually in the scriptures. It's extra scriptural. So what I did is I took that concept and I went back to Noah's Ark of Millions of Years, this idea that his ship passed from you know, some distant place across the galaxy through the rift in the Milky Way and arrived here on this planet, cataclysmically combined with this world, and then the seed group on the Ark mixed with the seed group that was already here on this planet, and we are the genetic amalgamation of that blending of two races. In the ancient traditions, what they have come up with, what they state, is that sometime in the end times, sometime around 2012, 2020, 2030, somewhere in there, the two Earths become dissident and they come back apart. And the higher, higher vibrational Earth goes back through the rift in the Milky Way back to its origin. And that is the basis of the birth trilogy, B-E-A-R-T-H. It's kind of a play on words, like birth of a new earth. Yeah. So what happens to the race of mankind is we divide with the planets. The higher vibrational, awake, loving souls go with the higher earth and the dark, murderous, twisted evil souls stay behind with the dark and cold earth that stays in this orbit it's a giant epic science fiction movie and i was inspired to turn it into a book which turned into three books the birth trilogy and tens of thousands of people have read them and they call them the birth journey mm -hmm. and i am now converting that into a movie or into a series of 42 episodes for Netflix or Hulu or Amazon or Apple TV or whoever is going to buy it. And by the way, there's a GoFundMe project on funding the pitch reel, and you can find it easily at GoFundMe under the birth series. Awesome. And I'll definitely include a link in the show notes to that as well. But man, it is about that time. And Brooks, you clearly know a lot about a lot. I really appreciate your scientific approach to the hollow earth specifically. You stand far and above the crowd in that regard. And I really look forward to the expedition actually happening after all these years. Anything else to tell the people about 
following your work before we call it in? Well, you can always go to Amazon. All 10 books are for sale there, Barnes & Noble, Kindle, and Nook. And here's the deal. If you buy any of those books, I will give you the audio version for free. So if you're not a great reader, don't worry about it. I read it for you. <laughs> awesome. Much appreciated, man. Also, X Squared Radio still going strong. Probably should let the people know about that. There are some details there. They can catch it live or the last couple episodes archived. One episode is archived for free. The archives are pretty cheap about the price of a cup of coffee, which it's a listener-supported network anyway. Mm -hmm. But X Squared Radio, Sunday nights at 8 p.m. We are the number one Sunday night talk radio program in America took a long time to get there. We don't intend on giving that position up. Tune in. I promise you will not be disappointed. <laughs> well, add it to the long list of accomplishments, man. Very impressive. Much appreciate your time and take care out there. Thank you very much, Greg. You got it. And boom goes the dynamite, dear listeners, a return to the hollow earth topic with probably the best guest who can take this on from a scientific perspective. A lot of great data points to consider without having to go over Admiral Byrd, Olaf Jansen, or any of these other books or stories that I do like, but I don't know that they push the needle forward like some of this other recent stuff can. I want the earth to be hollow, so we have to look at the real data that suggests that it could be. That's the beauty about this episode. And so I not only appreciate Brooks taking the time, but I have waited three years to have him back because I didn't want to just rehash the same material. And I guess I kind of just thought there would be more updates on both the electric truck and the expedition. Doesn't seem like there's been a ton of movement in three years time. And I understand that these things are expensive and also going against the grain of the system, so maybe I should be more realistic. But I've been patient for a long time. And it isn't just up to Brooks to do something. It's really like the entire alternative energy community or all these claims that have been made. In fact, I'm going to try to get some guests who can go deep into ether physics and anti-gravitic crafts and this whole state of the alternative science conference circuit. I want to know what's going on. If there's something there, let's talk about it. This is a realm of shows I've been trying to coordinate for the past couple weeks, and I think that's where October's shows are going to go. But I'm on the edge of my seat with this hollow earth expedition, because even if you don't definitively prove that the earth is hollow, you might discover new species or new areas of the planet that just haven't been explored. You heard Brooks talk about that huge passageway opening up and the crazy amount of new discoveries with the rays. That's insane. And just in the time I've been holding on to the show, I read that another huge state-sized piece broke off. I don't know if it's in the same area or if it would open up similar discoveries, but I saw it on Reddit in an airport, and it definitely registered as something to read more about later. And yes, dear people, it's been a minute since we had a new show. I took a little two-week vacation. If you saw social media, I did post it there. It's been a while since I took any kind of time off. And I had a great trip with great people. And that's why I got three shows out so early this month. And now I have two left to go. The editor had them while I was gone, so it shouldn't be too tough to knock them out for you. But all the travel did kind of beat up my immune system a bit. 
I don't know why I have such trouble with air travel, but I always end up sick and needing a few days to bounce back. Maybe it's just marijuana withdrawals, because that's about the only time I ever take a break. But I am going to muscle through. No big deal. Maybe you can hear it in my voice. Maybe you can't. But I do think I'm going to have to postpone the joint session this month. One, because I'm a little sick. Two, because the problem last time was not having enough notice. And here we are with just five days left in the month. I'm afraid we're going to run into the same thing. But let's go ahead and say October 25th. We will do another one. 7 p.m. Pacific time, October 25th. You're getting a full 30 days notice. I will be ready and willing to take your calls again. But back to today's episode, because this one had been in the works for a while, it was funny to have recorded this before Elon Musk was on Joe Rogan. Everybody's heard of that now. And the last time Brooks was on THC, we spent some time talking about his experience with Joe on that sci-fi show, Joe Rogan Questions Everything. And it was just a strange, synchronistic cycle that lined up pretty similarly to how it lined up three years ago. I found that interesting. Anyway, I brought Brooks here to talk about the Hollow Earth science and also his work into the science of manifestation and several other good things that we did get into in the second hour, stuff like strange qualities of the sun that conflict with the conventional model, the validity of ether physics, quantum gravity and consciousness, the science of manifestation, how to heal our past. Really, really interesting stuff. But then we got into the Trump administration, and I've been pretty vocal about not trusting any executive branch to be working on behalf of the people, and Brooks thinks otherwise. And he gave his reasons, as well as mentioned his personal meeting with Steve Bannon and Eric Trump at Trump Tower. And that sort of shocked me. I did not expect Brooks to be involved at that sort of level. And he mentioned a few other side stories related to this political back and forth that I wasn't aware of either. And I know he wrote the book Charm of Favor about the Clinton crime syndicate. I didn't get a chance to read that book. Because, number one, that wasn't the focus of wanting to get Brooks on. And number two, I just have read so much about the Clinton cabal that I don't need to be convinced anymore of most of their major crimes. I get it. But still, if you only heard the free show, then you wouldn't have any idea we ever discussed this. But for the plus people, obviously it was a big part of that parting conversation. Personally, I'm sticking with the sort of stuff we talked about with Gordon in the Empire's Pivot episode. Broadly speaking, I think that is a better analysis of what's going on. And I think that maybe someone can get so deep into researching how bad one side is that when the other side wins an election unexpectedly, they sort of default to thinking that somehow these must be the good guys. I don't think there are any good guys. Not at that level. Empires change direction and players, but there are always people suffering. I've said it before, but the way I see it is that a level above the Clintons brought Hillary in to some shadowy round table and said, look, lady, as the public figure here, your job was to be liked. That was your only real job was to be liked. And now everybody hates you and your crimes have been exposed and we cannot ride this wave for another eight years with you. So you are out. You are kicked out of the club. And I think that's what happened. I think the Clintons got kicked out of the club. The elite are still the elite, and they cut their losses on one particular thread and made a pivot to Donald Trump, who (laughs) has never really done anything for anyone else 
and makes a fitting figurehead for these chaotic times. But hey, I'm just a college dropout stoner on the outside of everything, so I guess my opinion is of limited importance. Brooks is definitely entitled to his. I have no problem with a person having a different opinion and making their case. I think he's an intelligent guy. And I know a lot of listeners think that I'm wrong about Trump. And so for them, it was probably pretty refreshing to hear a guest talk about that stuff and challenge me a little bit. Like I said, I'm not the one having meetings in Trump Tower with Don's inner circle. I'm just a one-man show sitting on the outside. But anyway, I thought this was a really fun one, probably unexpected. And I really love the first three-fourths of it. And big thanks to Brooks. He is one of a kind and makes the best case for the hollow earth of anyone on the circuit. And I'm very much appreciative. So I'll see you next time. Your move, hollow earth suppressors, icebreaker expedition roadblockers, and secret science quarantiners. Your fucking move. Oh no. You see, the world isn't random, it's attached to puppet strings, control over everything. The nine to five is trying to steal ya, now don't that job seem silly? Hello, can you hear me? Or should I play back? Some spike agency Wish we were younger And free I'll be thankful when it's all exposed The vast conspiracy There's such a difference Between us And the damn It's no secret